I, I got to tell you, I, I love the 11 o'clock service uh, because if I had to choose one to go to, this would be it. Although I think Element must be getting older because it's like people are like falling by the wayside like for 11 o'clock. But I, I love this. This is this way to go, guys. That's it. Now, tonight is going to be different than any other Christmas Eve service you've probably been to. At Christmas Eve, I, if you've ever been here, I try to take a larger-than-life concept, and I kind of bring it around together around the birth of Jesus. I'm going to do that with the ideas of family and adoption, but this is going to be more like a sermon than probably any other Christmas Eve message I've, I've ever given. We just spent four weeks at Element talking about how Christmas is a time when family gets together and they show up, and sometimes those family interactions don't always go so well. Maybe you even had one of those on the way to a Christmas Eve service. Yay! Go you. Uh, So we did this short Christmas series called Jingle All the Way because at Christmas we feel like we have to act happy and suck it up and jingle all the way when those weird family members come by. Plus it's the name of an old Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and we keep saying we had to at some point have to use an Arnold movie title for something and we couldn't call it It's Not a Tuma or You Say We could have called it I'll Be Back but that would be we talk about the book of Revelation or something like that. Oh... So, so you get jingle all the way. Sometimes, as I said, we have to jingle all the way because we misunderstand what Jesus has called us into by being part of his family. So let me ask you this. How many of you are here tonight with someone in your family? Okay, a lot of you guys. Okay. Now, how many of you are here because someone in your family invited you? Oh, yeah, it's a little different than that, right? Now, don't raise your hand for this, okay? Don't raise your hand. But how many of you are here because if you didn't come, you would never hear the end of it over Christmas? Right, don't raise your hand. I don't want to know, right? Right? But, you know, you feel an obligation to be here. And if we're honest, we can all admit that family sometimes can be hard. Like, you ever see those awkward family photos? Here, I got one. Right? This one, this one right here, this is my favorite. Right here. Nice. Do we have another one, too? Is it there? Yeah, there you go. There you go. I did not know that one was going to be up there, by the way. <laughs> In the church, God calls us to be a family because God made us and calls us and brings us in. It starts when it ends with him. And I told you that if you don't have messed up people in your family, you will be able to find those messed up people in the church. And so we wanted you to know how to work through some of those things in other people's lives and in your life. And if you don't know, again, any difficult people in your life, as I keep telling you, you are probably the difficult person, but nobody wants to tell you. But I just did. So Merry Christmas. And that's to your family, not to you for someone actually saying it. So you're welcome. Now, the, no, really? Uh, now, in this, I, I heard once of this story about a police officer who went to a house and there was this thing where a wife apparently shot her husband because he had stepped on the floor that she just mopped. And so he calls dispatch and they're like, well, do you have him? Do you have her in the car? Is she arrested? And he said, no, 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 not yet. The floor's still wet. See, because families are crazy. They can be that way. And once you realize that your family is different than everyone else's family, it's too late to do anything about it. And there are a lot of things in your life that you get to choose. But you get to choose how you will interact with those people who show up at Christmas time. You get to decide how fast you will drive to a Christmas Eve service, even if somebody wants to complain about that driving on the way to said service. You get to choose what you will eat, how many Christmas cookies you will consume. Next week, you will get to decide if you're going to work off all those Christmas cookies or not. But you do not get to decide the day of your birth. And you do not get to decide what family you were born into that happens to you. 
And our families, they will shape us and mold us in ways we don't even comprehend. The first social relationships that we have as children is with family. And we begin to understand our own personhood based on those interactions. Do we see the world as revolving around us? Or do we see ourselves as just another member of the kingdom? And the kind of care and attention that children receive when they are little are going to affect the important issues later in life, such as trust versus distrust and autonomy versus disunity. And caring correctly for children equips them for establishing all these ties later in life with people outside the family. Studies show that even newborns, newborns do not even realize that they are separate and distinct entities from their parents. Eventually, they do realize that because then they start using the words no and mine. But when they're first born, they don't realize they're actually separate. And there's this whole debate today called nature versus nurture about this. But no matter where you fall on that, the consensus is in the end, your family, whether good or bad, big or small, loved or neglected, is going to determine a lot of your character. If you grow up in a non-structured home, the majority of kids will get into trouble trying to find some structure. If a home has a lot of arguing, either the kids tend to be withdrawn or will they will have conflict-ridden relationships. Firstborn children tend to take on more responsibility, which likely has to do with how they were raised. Firstborn kids are like, where are you going? What are they eating? How are they doing? And everybody's kind of all over that. I have friends now that have three and four kids. And when you get three and four, it's like, hey, where's your kid? They're like, I don't know. They'll show up. Because like the third or fourth one, they're like, I don't know, they're around here somewhere. Outgoing parents tend to have uh, adventurous kids. Parents who act like victims and the world's out to get them have kids who see the world as unfair. Let me just say something into our cultural climate a little bit. If you put more effort into naming your home Wi-Fi network than your kid's name, you're going to have some issues. So Merry Christmas. I may have just given your life some clarity. But family has always been important throughout the history of the world, and not just to humankind, but also to the animal kingdom. You ever have a bird build a nest in your backyard, and they get some babies in that nest? They will dive bomb you like you're a Pearl Harbor and they're kamikaze pilots to keep you away from that nest. A lot of people are afraid of bears, but bears typically will not attack people unless there's a cub present. A couple years ago, this movie came out called The Revenant, had that guy in it from Titanic. You thought he went down with a ship, but no, he's alive. He made another movie called The Revenant. And, and in this movie, he is mauled by a bear. That's really the only part of the true story that matched the guy's real story in his life. But he was mauled because the mom was trying to protect her cub. I actually, about a month later after seeing The Revenant, I had this bear mauling dream. But I was in the mall and I was on top of a refrigerator and the bear had antlers. It was really weird. You don't really want to know about it. But, but even bears want families. And the term family has changed throughout the ages. The Century Dictionary in 1902 defined a happy family as an assemblage of animals of diverse habits and propensities living amicably or at least quietly together in one cage. I think that's hilarious because that really reflects a lot of our families. We're a bunch of animals like we're in a cage just trying to figure it out so we live quietly or peaceably together. For the longest time, family didn't mean what we think it means. In the 15th century, family, family meant members of a household, the estate property, the household including relatives and servants. The word family in its origins was an abstract noun that came from this word called familius, and it meant servant or slave. And if you're a teenager, that probably explains your life right now. You're like, oh, now I get it. The, the Latin word that we get family from rarely appears in the sense of parents with their children before the 17th century. Before then, referring to that specifically, they would use the word domus, which is where we get domestic or domicile from. Derivatives of familius include a serving woman or a maid or in the manner of a servant. 
1540, the Century Dictionary defines the English use of family as a collective body of persons who form one household under one head and one domestic government, including parents, children, and servants, and sometimes used even of lodgers or boarders. That's very broad. In the 1600s, the parents with their children, whether they dwell together or not, that starts to become the idea of family. But the old definitions are still hard to break. In 1788, the term family man meant someone who was a thief. He was part of the fraternity of thieves. Not until almost a 100 years later did family man mean someone who's devoted to his wife and his kids. In 1796, the phrase in a family way meant somebody who was pregnant. In 1807, the term family values is first recorded. We have all these things that swirl around family. And the Christmas story is about God becoming a man in the person of Jesus and joining into a family. I mean, think about this. As I said, you don't get to pick your family. My mom was born in Missouri. There's not a lot of people there because they leave. It's like it rains and a car or a refrigerator ends up in a tree and they leave it there like it's a Christmas ornament or something like that. My mom was smart, got in the car, she left. I got a weird family. Um, On my dad's side, my great-great-grandma was knocked up by a traveling musician. Maybe you try to go and look at your ancestry.com and figure all this stuff out and you get a few generations back and you find a woman whose, whose husband and father is both named Henry and you're like, what's up with that? And your mom's like, don't ask. Your family tree doesn't fork. It's like one big branch. You're like, we don't get to choose our families. Not that I would, not that I would, but you got to think about this. God got to choose his. He got to choose his. The God of the universe could have picked anyone. He could have been a Hendrix, like a, like a Jimi Hendrix or a Kennedy or a Windsor or a Perry. Not a Katy Perry, but like a Steve Perry, like when Journey was actually good. That guy. Or a Gates, a Zuckerberg. But who does he choose? God chooses a backwater family from a nowhere place. A family that all of us probably couldn't wait to get out of and move out of town and and go somewhere else. All of Mary's life, she's going to be judged because she got pregnant before she was married. She tells Joseph, no, God put the baby in me, Joseph. You've got to believe me. I'm still a virgin. And Joseph doesn't even believe her until an angel shows up and tells him. And those are the only two that get the visit. Nobody else in their town does. So Joseph gets labeled as the idiot with the loose wife. That's Jesus' family. As I said, they grew up in this place called Nazareth. It's not a big city. It's like a, it's like Sisquak or, or Gary. Sometimes you don't want to slow down too much because you've seen, you know, the hills have eyes or children of the corn. You don't want to like, oh my goodness. I'm sorry if you're from Gary, all right? The, the Hebrew word for family, it meant clan, tribe, people, a nation. Their view of family and our view of family is so different. Our view of family seems to be like those people that you're stuck with, those people who show up around Christmas. Their view of family was a tribe of people who were chosen by God and loved by God in the midst of a world that's broken and decaying. When an Israelite thought of family, they thought of this guy named Abraham, who for most of them had been dead thousands of years. To this day, Jews still call him Father Abraham. Why? Because that's their view of family. It's not something that separates. It's something that brings us together, adopts us in. It makes us a family, a common lineage. Now, other cultures did have views of shared life. But unlike the Israelites, the other cultures had the ultimate goal of personal fulfillment and pleasure for oneself. Sounds very familiar to our culture today. Like in Greece, the whole community was supposed to work towards a common goal that made sure everyone had enough to live the leisurely life that they wanted. Usually that ended up in ways that destroyed them. But they would do this on the backs of slaves because slaves were not part of the community. They were there to serve others. 
But in the Jewish culture, in the idea of shared life and family, it was always meant to be a reflection of God's community that he shares within himself as the Trinity. So much so that even those who became servants in these homes became part of the family. Spending time together with each other as a family was meant to be life-giving and sustaining. We were never meant to be a people who lived without it. God designed people to come alive through these connections, and we would love and worship and care for others and celebrate together. And do you know that living in this way in a family that loves one another has actually been shown to have better health benefits than exercise? Winston Churchill, uh, he's the guy that led England to stay together as a, as a country during World War II. He had a wonderful marriage with his wife, was deeply connected to his family, his friends, his nation, his work, but his health habits were terrible. They were terrible. His diet was awful. He smoked cigars all the time. He drank too much, had weird sleep habits, was completely sedentary, yet he lived to be nearly 90 years old. Someone once asked him, Mr. Churchill, do you ever exercise? His reply is this, the only exercise I get is serving as a pallbearer for my friends who died while they were exercising. Now, now, I should say, you probably should exercise, but maybe you do it with those you hold most dear because God made us to come alive through connections. But as humanity always does, we destroyed what God intended for us to be and family to become. The first murder in the scriptures is one brother killing another. So I love this. I love that. I, I, you know why he killed his brother? Because his brother worshiped God better than him. So I'm going to kill that guy so no one worships God better than me. Kind of seems like he doesn't understand the God that he is worshiping at this moment. Well, thousands of years later, you get to the guy we talked about, Abraham. Abraham is going to have conflict with his nephew. Abraham's sons will have conflict. Abraham's sons' sons will have conflict. You get to the 12 tribes of Israel when they're birthed. They have conflict with each other. It seems we are always fighting what God called us to be because we are more focused upon ourselves and our wants rather than what God wants. And we destroy ourselves every single time. Because family has been broken. It is why your family is broken. It is why when that weird uncle or somebody shows up, people get scarce. But wouldn't it be amazing to be part of a family like God designed? If we could stop fighting what God calls us into and simply begin to rest in it. What if we had a picture of what God intended in family? Like if only God would come and live it out in front of us in an understandable way. Oh wait, he did. That's Christmas. John 3.17, Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In John 1.14, we are told, And the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus coming into the world, it's this theological word that we call incarnation. And incarnation has all these words attached to it, like redemption and pain for our sin and rescue and hope and life. But it's also meant to be about the restoration of all that we had broken, including our family. Incarnation is about the flow of life from God to us, because God is simply that good. The creator becomes like the created to give new life to his creation. True light enters the darkness to dispel the darkness. A new birth becomes available that God grants to people to give them eternal life. Jesus' birth is the revelation of God's glory so that all who receive him have life lavished upon them, grace upon grace upon grace. The incarnation is about God identifying with humans to bring them to himself. When we are united with God, we become part of his family. In First Peter, Peter says, you are a holy nation. The you is plural. He's not talking to one person, but a whole group of people who believe. That holy nation, that's Hebrew language for family. 
The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says, you are ambassadors of God. Ambassadors are representatives of another country. That is language for family. And yes, the incarnation is about atonement and God covering and fixing and restoring what we are broken, but it's also about family. When we are people who start to follow Jesus, for some reason we always want to twist everything we read in the scriptures and make it all about ourselves and our own glory instead of God's glory. Like right after the birth narratives in the scriptures, Jesus goes to John the baptizer to be baptized, to identify with his people. So many people misunderstand this, but Jesus goes to be baptized so that he would, he would be in the family of God. Not that he wasn't in it, but that people would understand he is becoming part of it. He's showing what true life was meant to be lived like. So he goes and he gets baptized and right after After that, he goes into the wilderness, and he is tempted by the devil. Now, modern Bible scholars will always want to make this about how we're supposed to deal with temptation. They will say, quote Bible verses at the devil, and he'll run away like one of those yappy dogs when you go boo. And it runs off. But Jesus' temptation, the whole idea of this and what happens, all goes back to the idea of restoration. It's a picture of him being what we were meant to be but failed. It's why the scriptures also call Jesus the second Adam. It's metaphorical language for Jesus bringing restoration. Where the first Adam failed and family was destroyed and mayhem ensued, the second Adam brought restoration again. Jesus also reflects in his temptation a second wilderness experience because they were in the, the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is in 40 days. And it's supposed to reference one another to show that the entire nation of Israel, the whole tribe, the whole family experiences something in Exodus. In this wilderness, when tempted to make bread, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. When tempted to jump off the temple, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. When tempted to seize control of the nations, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. All of these things dealt with Israel's wilderness experience. It all refers back to the family of God, the nation of God's people. The text isn't necessarily dealing about cer- with certain temptations, at least I hope not, because when was the last time you fasted 40 days and Satan brought you rocks and tempted you to turn them into Olive Garden breadsticks? Or when's the last time you were in New York City and you climbed to the top of the Empire State Building and you're like, I'm going to jump off to show everybody how God's going to take care of me? No. When's the last time you were tempted to take possession of the nations of the world? Probably never if your name isn't Trump or Clinton, right? I don't have any time to go into all of this, but the scriptures from front to back are about God calling us into his family, his redeeming us into what we are meant to be, his people, his church, his nation, his family. The scriptures constantly show how Jesus came to make that possible. And it all starts with Christmas. In Luke 2, 10 through 14, these angels go and they find these shepherds, this, these dregs of humanity that nobody, nobody wanted to be around. And the angel shows up and says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That's the word gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there is with an angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying... Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What is this good news? What is this gospel? Why are these shepherds so excited? It's that God is rescuing and restoring all that was broken. How do we get to be part of this family, this nation, this hope? It's simple. It's this word called adoption. This is the good news of the great joy of God coming to rescue us. John Piper calls adoption the heart of the gospel. Adoption is what brings us into God's family. Our modern word for adoption comes from a mid-14th century word that means to choose for oneself, to take by choice. It has the idea to wish or to desire. This is why we say things like God draws us, God chose us. Again, think about your messed up family. You didn't get to choose them. 
But God does get to choose. And God chose us. That is the beauty and the grace and the glory of Christmas. In Galatians 4, 4 through 6, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In Romans 8, 14 to 17, it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Piper writes this, The deepest and strongest foundation of adoption is located not in the act of humans adopting humans, but in God adopting humans. And this act is at the heart of the gospel. The word Abba, that this word that we hear is the most intimate words for dad. It derives from a baby's first words, Abba, Abba, Abba. And then Paul then attaches that to the word father to show the, all, the far-reaching implications of this. God is the father who oversees us as a people. He brings us together under his banner, and he's also our dad. Jesus says when we pray, we pray, our father. Jesus says that remember that God's posture towards us as a people of one of favor and blessing and generosity. Our God wants to give us what we need, not what we think we want, but what we truly need. And we get to come to him and we get to simply say our father. When Jesus teaches this, when Paul teaches this, this is groundbreaking in communication with God. All the fear and all the anxiety passes away and we get to humbly say, you have everything I could ever need. Imagine a God that is not shaped by us because we would never think of a God that is this good and this holy and this righteous and this loving. This is a God who must reveal himself to us. And the most clear way he has done that is in his son, Jesus. And this son says, you and I have been invited into his family and we get to pray our father. And I don't know how your family has shaped you to see the world around you, but this should shape us much different than our earthly families have shaped us. It should shape us to be more and more and more like him. Our God knows what we need before we ask. Our God is pleasurably disposed towards his children. We get to say our father. Nowhere in religious history has God ever been described and laid out as brilliantly as Paul and Jesus does. And it all comes down to with and whom we are united. With Jesus' birth, he becomes the second Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, In Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus, in this incarnation, incorporates us into his life by joining us into his family. And we get wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption because we get to be united with Jesus, born of a woman to adopt us all into the family of God. And tonight, I don't know what your Christmas story is. I don't know where you're at. But if you're feeling lost, alone, broken, hopeless, or if you're feeling full of joy, the miracle of Christmas is that God wanted you. I believe that you are here tonight to hear that, that God wanted you. He chooses us to be part of his family. And he not only reminds us of what we were meant to be, because we see that and we think that's got to be unattainable, but then he comes and is born and dies and rises from the grave to make that a reality. We should be a people who live in the grace of Christmas by surrendering all that we are to all that he is and becoming his children. Normally, if you ever come to Christmas Eve service, I give you guys trinkets to take out of this room with you so you remember what we talked about. Tonight, I don't have trinkets to give you. What I'd like you to do first off is just look around the room. It's an intimate setting, I know, but, right? This is now your family. 
that's a reminder of what God has done. And we center our lives on the person of Jesus Christ. We truly become brothers and sisters and family. Maybe this, this week at Christmas time, you'll hang out with your family or, or maybe not. I don't know what those look like. But as we interact with our families, we're meant to show them what family is meant to be and what God has done by adopting us and bringing us in as a people. And this comes back to understanding the heart of the gospel, that our great God adopts us because he wanted to. He chose us because he chooses to love us, not because we're so great, but because he is. And that should bring not just great comfort or great humbleness to us because our God loves us more than we can ever imagine. At Christmas Eve, I wanted to lay out communion for you guys. So if you guys felt like you want to take communion, you could. Communion is where you break the cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You can dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds you of his body and blood that was broken and shed for us. We didn't have services this morning, so we want to make sure we gave you the opportunity. There's also offering boxes next to the doors on the side wall. We don't pass a plated element. You know, it's a response to what God has done, but we've got to keep the lights on. Ha, ha, ha. But I also want to encourage you guys, hopefully when you came in, you got handed sermon notes. If not, they're on the communion tables throughout the room. Take some sermon notes home with you. There's like two questions on the sermon notes. And maybe that will help you to start to think through these ideas of adoption and what God has done. Maybe you can talk about it with someone around you and begin to go a little bit deeper into these thoughts. Like, you know, your family, you know, where is your family originally from? And are you glad that you're here and not there? And what does that look like? And isn't it amazing how God draws us in and calls us into his family, even as crazy as some of the stuff that has happened in our lives and the choices that we've made? God still brings us in because he is the one who is good and he is the one who adopts us. And this is the heart of Christmas. That God adopts people into his family because he is good. Let's pray. Father, tonight, I ask that we would be a people who remember the purpose of Jesus coming. That it is for reconciliation and redemption and forgiveness of sins and new life and new hope, but it was also about adoption. And bringing us back into your family. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. To take away all that separated us from you. And ultimately also us from one another. So that we can begin again. To live the lives that we were originally meant to live. We thank you for saving us. For drawing us. For choosing us. Even when there's nothing in us that is worthy, you call us and you make us worthy because of your great love. So tonight, have us begin to understand the great grace that has been bestowed upon us and that we begin to live out this life as your children, honoring you in all that we do because you are good and you've given us the best present of all. Not just salvation, but a family and a home and a hope. Teach us to live in that great hope of the family that you have provided. Amen. Merry Christmas.